Now time for our final message of today, be given by our elder Matthew Steele, First Peter, part four. Good afternoon. So, do you feel like royalty? Almost. I can see that about you. Last time uh, I, we were talking about Peter, we uh, discussed how we are royalty. That we have been made kings and priests, right? Do you remember that? Surely you remember that every day that you are royalty. Because I don't know about you, but I have people that come and dress me each morning and bring me my breakfast in bed. Oh, no. That was that dream I had the other night. But it's easy to forget, isn't it? But yet the scripture tells us that we are royal. That we are peculiar. Some of us more than others. We understand that. But we are special. We're the special people hard to accept, isn't it? We've had 2,000 years of Christian teaching about how God looks at us, how special we are to him. Still kind of hard to accept. I'm just Matt, and I'm not a very good Matt at that. I don't feel like I'm royalty. And yet, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 and 6, it says that Jesus has washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We have been made royalty. And maybe we're not fully manifested in our regal gown and on that white robe and the crown that will be given to us. But we are now, as Peter reminded us last time, a, a royal priesthood. We are kings and priests. From the time of Passover to the, end, the events of Pentecost, the church was changed from a frightened and lost group of confused believers into a powerful collection of kings and priests. realize that. And that we continue in that same vein, in that inheritance, that we should continue in that same vein. A powerful collection of kings and priests called to do the will of him, as it says in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so, We've been made to go through our own personal Passover, haven't we? We have, at some point in the past, been faced with the realization that Jesus Christ was our Passover, that he died for us, that he has cleansed us. And then he brought us to our own personal Pentecost, where we were buried in the waters of baptism, and raised 
again to life, newness of life, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to start singing. We've been brought through to that moment. And so we've accepted that we are now made something unique, something special, a royal priesthood. We've had our eyes opened. We've had our eyes and our hearts opened. And each one of us that has done that has now come to this very special place. A name and a title has been given to us. We are, by the word of God, declared and made a king and a priest, a royal priest. And then we're also just like Israel of old, aren't we? Because after we are baptized, after we have received this Holy Spirit, we're still here. We're still here in this wilderness, in this land of promise, aren't we? Just as Israel was. They still had to wander around for 40 years in the promised land, in this wilderness. So we also are sojourners and pilgrims on this earth. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had been called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, for us. And so we confess that as we are here, we are like the children of Israel. We are in the wilderness, strangers and pilgrims on the earth, living here, yes, but in very temporary tabernacles. We are looking for our permanent home. We are looking for that permanent home of that new body, that spiritual body. But even better than that is that city, that new city, that new Jerusalem, that heavenly city that's out there, prepared for us. We look for that. That is a city where Reg would not be able to give you any crime statistics about at all. Right? There will be no more reports of gun crime. No more reports of robberies and abductions. No more sex trafficking. No more priests abusing. Because the priests will be beautiful and holy and righteous. Royal priests. Each one of you. We look for that city. The city of the living God that will one day be on this earth. And so very soon we act this out, don't we? Every year we act this out. We're play acting. Just like when we were kids. Imagine if, and we 
we run off and we have this amazing journey in our minds. And we're play acting when we get together and we travel and we go to the, the place where God has placed his name and we celebrate and worship the Lord of hosts and keep the feast of tabernacles. I'm starting to get excited for Pat. Are you starting to get excited? It never fails every year. As the excitement builds, we just start to look for that, for the longing. And so, we look for that city as sojourners and pilgrims on the earth. And so in Peter, when he's writing to the churches in Asia, he also writes to us as well. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims. We're in this together. We're pilgriming together. Abstain from fresh fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And I thought it was interesting that Reg pulled that out earlier about the things that war against us, that bring us down. And what is the purpose of war? What's the goal of war? When a country goes to war, you could say, well, it's to put their will on the enemy. Yes. But when you're engaged in the war, it is to destroy the enemy or destroy the enemy's ability to make war. That's the goal of war. Fleshly lusts war against the soul. It's not just, you know, we slip up and mistakes. It's not just, you know, accidents. There is a battle. There is a war. And those lusts are designed to kill us. To kill us right out here in this wilderness. He says, having your conduct honorable amongst the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who, sent, who, who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not, as li you, not using liberty as a cloak for a vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. There's a lot in here. There is a lot of instruction in here, in just this small passage. What are the main concepts that jump out to you? As you think about that passage, as you've read through it, what jumps out to you? There's some challenging points. Honor the king. You're all a bunch of rebels. You, you threw off the king. What are you talking about, honor the king? Maybe honor the president? Uh, for some, that's difficult. Not the right political party, whatever it may be. Some of these things are difficult. 
Well, as I see it, what he's trying to say here, the basics of what he's trying to say is that we are royal priests. Act like it. If we are royal priests, then we should act like it. Can we claim this great title? Can we truly be royal priests and go back to doing exactly what we did before? Can we really do that? What's changed? What's changed if we continue in a life of sin? What has changed about us? We stole the title. That would be the only thing that would have changed. Before our Passover, before our Pentecost, before we were convicted. If we go back to that life, then what's really changed? He says we should abstain from or keep away from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. And they do war against us. Bring us down. Bring us to sin. And when we sin, are we untarnished? When we do those sinful things, are we, are we okay? Is that a good situation to be in? Are we free from guilt? Are we free from self-recrimination? Or do we go into denial? Do we justify our actions? Maybe cover it up with pride or arrogance? What does sin to you? Does it depress you? Does it depress us? Does it make us kind of separate ourselves from the brethren and from friends and family? Sin? Does it beget holiness? Or more sin? And we, sh- you know, we should really be careful too because this passage, it's easy to think Fleshly lusts. Well, we know what they are. But do we? Because they're not all about some kind of sexual behavior. That's, that's not everything that he's describing here. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the lusts For the the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So what are the lusts of the flesh? They are the desires, aren't they? They're the, the desires that we act upon, that we then sin in. He says in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred. Is there any sorcerers here? Doesn't seem like something we would do today. But maybe we do. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, 
that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We are sojourners. We're pilgrims. But if we do these things, we can't get to our destination. We will literally be like the children of Israel that came out from Egypt. They all died in the wilderness, save two. They all died not reaching that promised land. Not because God is vicious or harsh. It's not because he's out to get us. I'm just waiting for Matt to mess up and boom. I mean, I'd be dead a long time ago if that's the way he was. That's not what he is about. That's not how he views it. No, it's because we will damage ourselves. We will damage this new creature that's growing inside of us. We will tear down every vital characteristic that's necessary to enter into that promised land. He says that we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why is that? Why is it if we have those things in our character, if we do those things as a matter of course, if we live our life by these these lusts of the flesh, why is it we will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, in order to receive an inheritance, it typically flows from what? A parent to a child. From a father to a son from a mother to a daughter, whatever it may be. That's how we inherit. We have to be a child of God in order to inherit. So, we don't hurt God when we engage in these lusts of the flesh. We hurt ourselves. We make ourselves no longer a child of God. Makes me think of that psalm in Psalm 51, where I think it's David, says, Create in me, in verse 10, a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And what is that generous spirit? It's the spirit of God that creates a counter to the lusts. I don't know if you realize that, but back in Hebrews, he says that the spirit wars or battles against the lusts of the flesh. God is on our side. He's battling for us. He wants to help us. The spirit of God creates a counter to the lusts and the works of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, Envying one another. 
know, this is a bad kind of provoking, isn't it? Provoking one another. I gave a sermon one time where I talked about provoking one another to good works. And ever since then, Mrs. Gregory comes around and prods me whenever she sees me. She's trying to provoke me. And it always reminds me of the sermon that I gave to provoke me to good work. And it's interesting. If you look at each one of these fruits of the Spirit and you compare them in sequence, they're in opposition to the works of the flesh. I don't know if you've ever done that and looked at it that way. But instead of adultery and fornication and uncleanness and lewdness, the Spirit of God can give us real, deep, meaningful love. Isn't that incredible? You know, some of those acts there are considered acts of love. But so often they're not. The the fruit of the Spirit can give us love instead of those things. Instead of idolatry and sorcery, we receive the peace of God that passes all understanding. Why would we have idolatry? Why would we have sorcery? Belief in other things and spiritualism and so on. Because we're not at peace. We're afraid. We are lost. We don't have any basis in which to put our life and structure our life around. Instead of hatred and contentions, we will receive long-suffering and patience. Long-suffering and patience. In the place of jealousies and outbursts of wrath, we can be filled with gentleness. Exact opposite the works of the flesh. Where once there was selfish ambitions and dissensions and heresies and envy and even murders in our hearts, right? Angry at our brother in our hearts. Drunkenness and addictions. Read addictions where it says drunkenness. Addictions of all kinds. Revelries. Through the Spirit of Christ Jesus and the Father we can receive and grow the fruit of self-control. Man, if we just, if I could just master self-control, wouldn't all of these other works of the flesh just melt away? Having that self-control, what a fantastic and powerful fruit of the Spirit that is. Having self-control to probably help us avoid every other work of the flesh. And yet, it is hard to grow. You ever had a garden? Try to grow certain fruits and vegetables? I mean, some you just kind of toss the seeds down and enough water and sunshine and everything's fine. Others. It can be more tricky. It can be more difficult. Maybe you don't live in the light part of the country in the wrong kind of soil and you've got to balance everything just just right in order to produce self-control in order to produce that fruit of the spirit it has to be watered with just the right amount of instruction and teaching fertilized with just the right amount of patience and endurance and pruned 
the skilled hand and the knowing eye of the master fine dresser. I wish he would just help me a little bit more on self-control. Each one of us can have these fruits and have these fruits and more because God the Father is working in us to grow them in each one of us. But it's critical for us to remember that on the other side of this, that falling into some of these sins out of weakness is not the same as directing our life around that thing. It's not the same. Falling into anger, which is probably one of the easiest things that we can get into, is different than being angry all the time at everything. Having a, a, a rage that is just below the surface and, and any interaction with somebody or something not going quite your way and boom, there's an explosion. That is problematic anger. Isn't it? That is ordering your life around being angry. And we must do it for some reason. If we have that challenge, we must do it because we gain something from it. But just getting angry because something didn't work out right or you you know, you hit your hand with the hammer, that's a little different. That's not walking in that sin and ordering your life around it. So we do find ourselves in circumstances. Still. These are the things that Peter says, stay away from. And that's very practical, too, because what we think about when we are drawn out by these lusts, when, when we fall into these sins, there's normally circumstances that enable it. And we, we can look for those markers to say, okay, uh, I need to get some food because I'm getting hangry, right? That can damage some relationships because of how we interact. Take care of our body. Or maybe we engage in something when it's late at night and no one is around. Whatever that may be. Then don't be up late at night when no one is around. Recognize the warning signs. And be deliberate. Push them away. Avoid those things. So Peter says to stay away from those. Run from those if necessary. And then also seek God's intervention. I don't think we do that enough. Find a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Maybe not share all the details, but enough that they may pray with you. That they can... Be on your side. Help you. Help me. Help one another. It, the scripture says, confess your, your faults one to another. And pray for one another. It's hard to do that when we don't know the faults that we have. I told you one of mine. Self-control. Pray for me to have more self-control. And I would gladly pray for you and your difficulty. 
So Peter said, so Peter, when he says abstain from or keep away from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, he's not asking a small thing. That's hard. It's very hard. So why does he ask this? Why is he asking this? We, we've got a little answer from Paul because we can't enter the kingdom of God with these things in our life, ordering our life. But why Peter? Why is he, he, is he asking us this? He says in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, may, be, may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, that word visitation, it's kind of an old word. I looked it up. It means overseeing. There's an inference. It's from a root word that means inspection. So you could look at this and say that there, there's going to be a day of inspection. So as Peter saying, there's going to be a day for each one of us. Maybe just in a conversation with somebody, or it could be a formal process where we're hauled into court and we're asked about what we believe. We're asked about what we have said. That we've asked, we're asked about our faith and how we live our life. And, you know, we like to think, well, that's not going to happen in today's world, but it's happened before, Right? And it is happening in parts of the world today. For those that confess Jesus Christ, those that try to live their life as best they understand according to the gospel, are receiving days of visitation. They are being in an inquest, being questioned about what they believe and what they've said. So, if we were to be brought into that inquisition and asked questions, would they find the works of the flesh or the fruits of the Spirit? Would they find adultery or hatred alongside our preaching of love and kindness? What would they find in our inquisition, our visitation? If we are following Christ Jesus, and if we are showing the fruits of the Spirit, and we're shunning the works of the flesh, then all of their arguments, and all of their questions, and all their accusations, and all that they throw at us, will do something. It'll cause them to glorify God. Because on record, it says... By your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. How cool would that be? That they can see, in spite of their opposition, the works of God in our life. So that's a critical reason why Peter is saying, avoid all those works of the flesh. Shun all that evil. You are royal priests. 
children of the king live like that. We should live like that. Consistently living the way he wants us to live. And again, Peter is not talking about the sins of weakness. He's talking about how we order our life. The best example is, really, isn't it? All of the further revelations of of the, the Catholic priests that have abused individuals, thousands of individuals, and yet they've got up and preached and said how people should do things right, and yet they themselves were living that corrupt life. Little wonder that the world looks and says, okay, it's another example of what you get from Christians. But Peter says, let's not do that. In essence, what he has helped us to understand is that we are called to live a life of public service. Public service. And we tend to think, well, that applies to politicians, diplomats, the president. That's those folks. No, it's not. I'm sorry for all you introverts out there, but this is the road you started on, and it's a life of public service. Even if you don't preach, even if you don't teach, even if you're very quiet in in your work or in your school or wherever you live, you are noticed. If you're displaying the fruits of the Spirit, you are noticed. We are noticed. And if we display the fruits of the Spirit and, and we get ourselves a name amongst those that we work with or the community that we're in, And then we act contrary to God. What is that going to do to the impression that people have of our Savior and of our Heavenly Father? Do we claim Christ and live a life of spirit fruitfulness? Or do we allow ourselves to fall back into following the lusts of the flesh? So then, understanding that we are public figures, that we are royal priests, there's two crucial principles that I just want to share with you today that I think are important and what Peter is trying to get us to realize and be careful of. Turning back to 1 Peter 2, verse 13, he says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for a device, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So, thinking about that passage again, we read it earlier, but two concepts came to my mind. Be humble and stay on mission. Be humble and stay on mission. What do I mean by that? Well, starting with the second principle, staying on mission. Peter is telling these Christians in Asia that 
you know, and also through the millennia, right, to us, the same message to us, that we need to remember why God has called us, why we're still sojourning in this land. There's a greater purpose for the reason that we are still here. Beyond our own salvation, what is our mission? What is your mission? You know, it's especially important for the church in Asia. You think about the time period. You think about who the rulers in that time period were. And you think about what they were doing. They were going around saying, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Right? Jesus is the Son of God. Caesar is not. That, that could be sedition. That could be trying to upset the government, undermining the authority of Rome. So, are these followers of Jesus trying to organize a coup? That could have been seen that way, couldn't it? To Peter's telling them to be very careful and stay on mission. Because remember, he was one of the ones that said, all right, Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to boot out the Romans? And you're going to boot out those corrupt Jewish leaders and bring back the kingdom of God to the land of Israel? So if the believers themselves thought that that was the path that they were on, it's not hard for the rulers of the world then around them to think that maybe that was the path they were on. So there's a real risk that these Christians could be seen as revolutionary, wanting to bring down the government. They were, after all, going around, like I said, and preaching that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So for the church to do anything that could be seen as public disobedience, instigating against the authorities, or to use their freedom as a as a cloak to conceal fermenting trouble was not only dangerous, but it was counter to what God had in his plan. But for us, a little bit more complicated, isn't it? Because we live in a society, fortunately, that it has been very free. And public protest and, and public engagement in, in government and, and in debate has been a good thing. And, and we've had this free society because of it. But are there limits? Are we supposed to question the authorities? Are we supposed to challenge the system? In our kind of society, are there still limits? You know, you think about the last 100, maybe 200 years or so, all the major advances in the civil rights movements of different kinds came from where? Those that professed Jesus Christ, a broader Christianity. And so what is our role here? Are we to protest? Are we to try and change the government and society? I don't know what those limits are. I know what some of the limits are. 
Do you speed? Do I speed? Don't. Don't. Do we bend the law a little bit when filing our taxes? Forget about that one check that we got. Ah, it's just 150 bucks. Nobody will know. Let's not do that either. What's our mission? Is it to change the government of man? Think about that. Is our mission here for Christ Jesus to change the government, to rebel against the laws of the government? It's not. Are we to live outside of the law, build ourselves a, you know, a compound, buy up half of Montana and declare a new state? Some folks are doing that, right? I've heard of that. Are we to do that? Well, no. Are we to be a revolutionary? Not yet. Not yet. What is our mission? Are we here to overthrow the corrupt practices of man and his society, or are we here to do good? To help people, to give them comfort, in their sorrow, to give them godly wisdom when they are lost and confused, to free those that are bound. We've heard of that before, haven't we? To feed the hungry, clothe the naked. And what did Jesus say? To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. There's a reason that we are called Christians. We're many Christs. We are following in his footsteps. What's the role of the church? What's the role of we, the members of the church? I'm reminded of what Jesus said. Remember what he was saying to Pilate during his last corrupt trial of sorts? In John 18, verses 33, then Pilate entered into the praetorium again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And, to this, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And the truth is that his kingdom is not of this world. You know, there's been many revivals in the Western world trying to restore the kingdom of God on earth. Trying to bring about the kingdom of God and and there's even, you know, belief systems that say, well, if we just do everything right, then the kingdom will return. The kingdom is not of this world. 
It is alien to this world. But it is coming to this world. It will come down when he returns, when he stands on the mount and it is split in two, then it will be here. That's interesting. When you read the history of Christianity over time, the broader history of Christianity, in the end, what did the church do? It ignored Jesus altogether and took over the Roman Empire. Right? And it became the religion of the Roman Empire and of the Western world. And then engaged in this <laughs> kingdom building process that took hundreds of years to over overthrow. Exactly the opposite of what Jesus said. Why are we here? What is the mandate? Paul and Peter and all the others gave to us what did they pass down to us Jesus set up his church in the beginning to continue one part of his ministry one part of it the first part he never told us to do the second he never told us to bring down governments he never told us to bring about the kingdom of God on the earth. Turn back to John chapter 21, verse 15. I wonder if, I wonder how often Peter thought of this interchange in his life and maybe as he's writing this epistle. Jesus says, so it said when, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, he said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. And then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my feet. And then he said a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. That is what we have inherited from Peter and Paul and all the others. Is that part of this ministry that we are to feed the sheep. We are to feed one another. One time I might feed you and another you will feed into me. That is why we are here. And that is our mission. As for the humility, in the interest of time, we'll look at that next time when we get into Peter, part five.